Welcome to the Urban Remedy Podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. I am so excited today um, to have Dr. Stephanie Daniel with us. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And when I was thinking about doing a podcast about breast cancer awareness, a lot of different feelings came up for me because um, in my personal life and when I had my acupuncture practice, I uh, worked with people and have seen people take different treatment choices on their journey. So I really wanted to have somebody on that has a perspective that's about empowering people and not about just going into the fear of breast cancer, which is an extremely scary thing. So Dr. Stephanie Daniel is a practicing physician and founder of Functional Medicine SF in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's focused on empowering women using tools from root cause resolution medicine to offer personalized approach to health and well-being. She's also a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine and Bay Area Functional Medicine and the author of a book entitled Low Stress Food, Eat Your Way to a Low Stress Life. So thank you so much for being here. I really am excited to do this podcast with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, so like I said, I really wanted this podcast to be about giving information that's going to really empower women and kind of take some of the fear off of breast cancer because it is such a scary thing. And I feel like most of us know somebody who's been affected by breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So let's start out with really some empowering information. Like what are the best tips you can give us uh, to prevent breast cancer? Absolutely. Um, I would say that this is probably a big fear of most women, um, regardless of their age, as we also are seeing younger and younger women um, with diagnoses of breast cancer and, um, and record numbers, as you probably know. Um, so there's a, there is a extensive list of things that women can do to lower their risk of developing breast cancer. Um, My first recommendation would be to um, reduce the exposure to toxins in their environment. So can you give us some examples of that? You know, because some people don't really realize, you know, if if you, if it's about plastic or it's about the food that you eat or the air you breathe, like give us some good examples of what that really means. Absolutely. Um, I mean, definitely would start with the food that you eat because the pesticide load on conventionally raised um, produce or the hormones and in conventionally raised animal proteins um, we know are very toxic and promote um, breast cancer and other chronic diseases in um, various ways. So do you think that, because um, I always wondered this, um, you know, growing up like so many girls, I didn't grow up in a house where we drank milk, but I mean, so many girls were drinking a lot, and boys, a lot of milk every day that ha- that had the hormone, the growth hormones in it. Do Absolutely. you think that's a part of the breast cancer epidemic? I think it's one of many parts, um, as well as, you know, the hormones that they use in conventionally raised cattle, for example, and mm-hmm. beef. Um, et cetera. But, you know, just going back to even the produce part of it, um, pesticides that are used for um, when they spray the crops are commonly endocrine disruptors and they mimic estrogens um, in the body and, you know, can flood the body with estrogen-like signaling um, that overloads the system. Yeah. And we've talked about that before. I did a podcast with Jeffrey Smith, which was so interesting to learn his, the information about GMOs. And one of the big things was glyphosate and just, you know, how exactly what you just said disrupts the endocrine system. And it's so scary because so much of our food system is based with GMO crops. And so, so many people are eating it and just have no idea. It's like not even a choice. It's just happening to our, 
our country. It's a scary thing. It's super scary. You have to be really informed and proactive and choose organic or local farmers, you know, that you're familiar with um, as often as you can. Yeah. So what other lifestyle things um, or what other ways can what other tips on reducing toxins in the house? Yeah. So um, I think you mentioned plastics, which contain several different compounds in them, um, including BPA and phthalates that are also um, have been have been shown to stay circulating in um, in people's bodies. And those are also endocrine disruptors and toxic to to the system, which creates inflammation. Um, inflammation being, again, one of those major underlying factors in developing cancer or other diseases. So what are some ways, what are some other lifestyle ways? So, so everybody clean out your house, you know, try to, and stop using the microwave ovens and choose organic food, you know, filter your water. And then, so once people kind of go through that, then what are other ways, like what are foods we can eat or other things we can do to kind of prevent breast cancer? I would say that one of the top things that they can do is keep their vitamin D levels up, um, preferably over 50, which has been shown in many, many studies to be anti-carcinogenic. As for anybody who doesn't know, that's the sunshine vitamin, but um, is often necessary to be taken actually as a supplement because we don't get enough environmental exposure to the sun. So do you think, do you recommend um, trying to get like a little bit of sun? Do you think that's the best way to get vitamin D? I do think it's the best way. Um, So long as you don't um, cross the threshold where you start to burn. Yeah, because like a lot of people um, will put sunscreen on their kids, for example, like before they mm-hmm. leave the house. And I, I never do it with my son. And unfortunately, a couple of times he has gotten sunburned. But because um, I want him to get that vitamin D. And I think that is uh, there's such a huge movement out there to always wear sunscreen and always cover your sunscreen, which is going to affect your vitamin D levels. It is. It, it, um, even an SPF of 15 will lower the exposure by over 90%. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't give it, I don't put it on my daughter either, unless we're going to be out for really prolonged periods of time. And then I try to apply it after, um, a bit of time. I rarely use it myself. Um, and she's got really beautiful skin. (laughs) Thank you. Um, so that's one way to go about it. Another one would be, um, eating lots of leafy greens, which are really high in fiber. Uh Um, fiber is one of the best ways to help your body flush, um, toxins and extra hormones that your body doesn't need to utilize. Um, and the recommendation for women is to have upwards of 35 to 40 grams of fiber a day. Um, with an average, with the average American getting less than twenty. Wow! So if you're going to eat like a big, let's say you're going to eat a big salad, well, I should look on one of my Urban Remedy yeah. salads and see how much fiber. I can't even think of how much fiber is in a salad. But so, how many of those would you need to eat a day? For example, like a big salad. Uh, that's a good question. I know. We should we look to, it up really quick? We have to look. Let's <laughs> I see. I'm looking know. at the rainbow. Does it salad. have a fiber? It has the Mark? fiber. Oh, good. And it has. It says six grams. How could that be for all uh, of this? Yeah. It, I mean, I mean so you've got to eat a lot of vegetables. That said, it's a, yeah, the to achieve thirty-five to forty grams is quite a feat. Like you actually have to be intentional about it. Yeah. Um, but you know, veg- vegetable sources are probably one of the best sources. Um, in addition to the fact that some of the vegetables, in particular, are really awesome for estrogen metabolism. All the cruciferous vegetables—that's the family that has kale and cabbage and cauliflower, broccoli. Um, those are, um, in particular, help the body to direct the breakdown of estrogen in, down a, a pathway that's more favorable as opposed to a pathway that's considered carcinogenic. 
And so that's a huge problem because we have, you know, if you're drinking, you know, milk with hormones and eating meat and, you know, you're exposed to plastics, mm-hmm. you know, it's creating these, you know, estrogens, which are floating around your body. So we want to get them out. That's right. So eating those foods. Um, what, what Are there other ways to kind of open those pathways? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say anything that supports the liver because uh, all the all those hormones and per, all toxins are metabolized through the liver. So there's lots of different foods that are um, supportive of detoxification, uh, including, you know, citrus and beets and uh, those cruciferous vegetables that I mentioned. So it sounds like what you're saying is if you eat a lot of plant-based food that's fresh and in its natural state, you're going to be eating food that's going to support preventing inflammation, which prevents breast cancer and other diseases, right? That's absolutely right. In addition to its direct effect on being detoxifying. Yeah. And what about people, like, what about, do you ever see people that are just really poor detoxifiers and just, like, stuck and, you know, they can't, they're, what can those people do that's a little bit different? Um, So there are some genetic variations in terms of how good of a, you know, detoxer you are. Um, So getting adequate amounts of um, B vitamins is super important. Um, Making sure your gut microbiome is healthy. What some people don't know is that all the little microbes in our gut are responsible for making all of our toxins water soluble so that they can get out of our system. Otherwise, they stay stuck. So, how, um, so give us some tips. Like how can we – what are the things you would recommend to help our guts and get strengthen our guts? Um, I will – very much all the same things. So lots of leafy greens, high-fiber foods, plant like largely plant-based diet, low inflammation. They eat um, non-soluble fiber, which includes things like dandelion greens and onions and leeks and garlic, um, Jerusalem artichokes, chicory. Um, there's prebiotic fiber. I saw in one of your drinks, there's some inulin. Yeah. Inulin is a prebiotic fiber that the gut microbes love. Oh, cool. Um, and they helps them to, uh, helps them to populate and, and, um, recolonize, especially when we have all kinds of other ways in which we damage the microbes in our, yeah. in our little ecosystem. Yeah. And what about, do you recommend taking supplements like probiotics or, I know there's a couple prebiotic supplements out there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking to um, replenish, especially after a time period where um, you've needed to, you know, be on antibiotics or um, you know that you've gone through a bit of a, you know, sugar binge, which kills off some of those microbes, um, you'll definitely would like to, it it would be a good idea to use probiotics in the interim or in the short term to really um, help speed up that recolonization. Yeah. Another very specific nutritional um, support for preventing breast cancer that is not well known um, are foods that are high in iodine. So sea vegetables are the natural source of iodine that we're supposed to be getting from our, you know, from our from our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, this does not include iodized salt, so don't confuse it. But um, kelps and other sea vegetables, which are high in iodine, are really great for preventing breast cancer because um, secondary to the thyroid, the breast tissue is the has the highest number of iodine receptors in it. And because of chlorine in our water supply or bromine, um, which is used also as a as a um, a like purifying um, or what do you want to call it? 
not purifying. Is it like a water uh, treatment? Yeah, it's water treatment. Um, because of our exposures to those or fluoride in the water system, all of those molecules or compounds are in the same family as iodine mm-hmm. and they compete with the receptors mm-hmm. in the breast tissue. And because of that, um, it it kicks off the iodine from that receptor, which is protective against breast cancer. So so interesting. Wow. We need to eat more of it yeah. because we don't naturally get it unless we're intentionally, you know, getting our our kelp and our seaweeds. So back to really quick your, to the, the first part of this. So you recommend, and I am on the same page. Like, don't use iodized salt. No, absolutely. Because that's a lot of people think. Oh, I'm doing iodized salt, mm-hmm. so I'm getting my iodine. Highly refined, um, as actually has sugar in it and no minerals and no caking, minerals, decaking stripped agents. of yeah, stripped of all its good nutrients. So, and what do you think about, like, I, I personally take um, uh, iodine supplement. I just do, like, one drop of liquid mm-hmm. iodine. Do you think that's... Um... For most people, that's definitely okay, as long as it's not too much. Uh-huh. Um, there is a subset of people who might have some autoimmune activity going on with their thyroid where it could stimulate that. But if that's not your in your history um, and you're, you have it from a good source and it's a very minimal you know, low dose, that can also be helpful. And it's probably a good idea for people to get their thyroid checked every once in a while just to see what's going on with your thyroid because it's so important, you know, for your overall health. It is. It's, um, I call it the canary in the coal mine because it's the first thing that will show signs of distress if there's something out of balance in your body. That's great information. So if you haven't done so already, go out and ask for a panel and get your thyroid done. And and when you do, I think another important thing to mention is when you do your thyroid, don't just do your 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 T3, right? No. no I mean, your TSH. You want to do the full ahead. panel, yeah. the antibodies, get your vitamin D levels checked at the same time because as much of that plays a role in the thyroid, it plays a role in breast cancer prevention or all cancer prevention. Um, there's definitely a number of different markers that you can look for in the blood inflammatory markers again that was another it's another one oh, to so consider. what test would you uh what test is that um i look at a high sensitivity c, c reactive protein okay which is a um, global marker for generalized inflammation in the body um, and anything over one i consider a little bit of a red flag that that's so that's so good to know so then when you see that if it's over one then do you just put somebody on a protocol to help lower inflammation the number one thing that people can do to lower inflammation is be on an anti-inflammatory diet so um, important and that is you know the the overview I give people is um, no sugar um, no gluten no corn no soy no dairy no peanuts um, that you know, those, that subset of foods yeah. will cover the vast majority of people. And then lots of, you know, um, lots of leafy greens and other vegetables. The and it's vegetables. so funny, like all those things you just listed, that's pretty much a standard American diet. Know. You know, that's what people are eating. And that's unfortunately why people um, in our country are, are very sick compared to other countries. Um, one of the things that I was really surprised that I learned years ago when I first started my practice, I got into... Um, I got into holistic health when I was pretty young, and I, for some reason, I, I read about SCACT, and I was it really got me interested in learning about alternative cancer, and and uh, so I just you know did some studies on um, you know things like biofeedback and just how you know a kind of being able to regulate your thoughts and uh, can really affect your health. Um, so I went on to you know become an acupuncturist, and I was excited to kind of share some of that information, and then I learned in the state of California that um, legally, you know, the only, there's a standard of care, which means, you know, you can only treat cancer with a standard of care, which is pretty much chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. And um, 
it really shocked me that, you know, from my studies, I had read about lots of different alternative therapies that were really interesting. And so when people would come to see me and they had the diagnosis, I would try to just educate them on alternatives and just so people can make an informed choice. And that's why I'm so excited to have you here today, because um, I don't, you know, every person's body is their body. And I think they should be empowered to make the best choice they want. And if, if chemotherapy or radiation is their choice, I respect that. And I think that's fine. But I think an informed choice means really having all the information. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, that not only are there alternatives, but the alternatives can be also used in conjunction should somebody should somebody choose that conventional path. Um, that said, you know, there's so much that can be done. Um, we talked, you know, a bit about different food choices and the high um, amounts of cruciferous vegetables and um, keeping vitamin D levels up and ways to help detoxify your your environment and your body. Um, there's some other like specific things that I do. Um, one of the things is working with the immune system mm -hmm. because cancer is an inflammatory disease as well as a, um, a disease of immune dysregulation. Um, and so kind of going back to that, that thought you had about people who are poor detoxifiers, um, that often goes hand in hand with um, people who uh, are more likely to have some immune dysregulation. And there's some very specific nutritional ways that we can intervene to optimize. So give for us that. some examples. So, so um, I, I work a lot with a pathway called methylation. Mm -hmm. And methylation, um, really like the basics of methylation just means it's the way that the body takes one starting point and converts it into something else with an enzyme reaction. And a lot of people um, are are inefficient methylators, um, which is one of the risk factors with all cancers, including including breast cancer. And so one of the things that we do is we do very targeted micronutrients, um, particularly in the B vitamin family, to overcome the genetic inefficiencies that somebody might be born with. Um, that's, so that's one way. Uh -huh. um, another way is there are there's uh, two different compounds in particular that promote um, healthy estrogen metabolism because it's the unhealthy or or poorly detoxifying estrogens that are implicated in in developing breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but those two things are methane or DIM, which is what is in all the broccoli and kale and So how much like kale, if you were going to compare like taking like your normal dose of yep. a DIM pill compared to how much you would have to eat, do you know the equivalent? I don't know the exact it's equivalent, lot, but right? I think it's buckets. Yeah. <laughs> buckets full. So sometimes it's helpful to have some targeted micronutrient therapy in yeah. addition to the foods that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and then another one um, that also helps promote that healthy detoxification and metabolism is calcium deglucrate, mm -hmm. um, which is also commonly found in the cruciferous vegetable family, but also in the squashes, in squash oh, cool. and um, in pumpkins. So like green, like um, winter squash? All squashes. Oh, including all, summer squash. Oh, yep. cool. All squashes are, um, have a lot of calcium deglucrate in it as a, as a main um, compound, and that's also very detoxifying. Oh, that's so good to know. Really good info. Um, and then, so what about like when somebody comes to see you and let's say they have been diagnosed with um, breast cancer, um, what kind of thing, what like, how can they kind of be empowered to, you know, make an informed choice? You know, we obviously already talked about the standard of care and know that that is legally 
what doctors, that is what's under your regular oncologist belt to treat. They're not mm-hmm. allowed to tell you to go do an infrared sauna or ozone therapy or drink a medicinal tea or anything. But are there things that they can do um, legally kind of while they're uh, in process with chemo? You mean that a doctor could recommend yeah. or that the patient could do? Or, well, I guess a patient could do whatever they want, right, because it's their they body. Can. And that's a really important point, right, because right. that you you know it's your body, so you need to make an informed choice and do what feels right to you. Um, but what are some things that people can do um, if they're diagnosed with, let's say, like a stage 3 or stage 4 while they're doing a more traditional therapy? Pretty much all the things that you can do for prevention. Okay. Um, Greening your environment, getting rid of the toxins and the overexposure to toxins, changing the way you're eating, um, very low inflammation, get the sugar out. Sugar feeds cancer cells. In fact, um, another statistic you might not know about is the cancer cells have um, have 10 plus X the number of insulin receptors on them wow. than normal cells. Um, so they're a, a ripe target for having um, for growing from feeding them a high sugar diet. So if you're eating, so if you have cancer and you're eating sugar, you're really feeding that cancer. You so are. It, will, it will grow faster. It will grow faster. Wow. And what about um, like the lymphatic system? You know, it, would that just kind of go with a poor detoxifier in terms of like your lymph thing? You, stuck? It, not necessarily. That's more mechanical. So you can do all different things to stimulate the lymphatics. Um, you can do lymphatic massage. Um, you can do... Um, uh, like osteopathic manipulation has yeah. um, lymphatic drainage techniques. Um, I'm not sure if acupuncture can work on the lymph yeah, system as definitely. well. Because I think in acupuncture, I relate the lymph to uh, just the meridian system and mm-hmm. just, you know, stuck energy is stuck energy, right? That's right. So, um, yeah, I, I think that which, would be. Which brings up a, another, like another whole concept of this idea of stuck energy and the emotional piece um, of. That, the emotional piece of how that might contribute to developing, you know, a chronic disease or, you know, something like a cancer. Um, I think it's a pretty un, unpopular in convention to acknowledge that there's emotional and energetic components to disease. Um, but I'm sure oh. from your practice, you know, and from my own practice, um, it's a it's a component in everybody's oh, health. Yeah. And Huge to- component, maybe more than most of this physiological stuff yeah. is that we've been able to measure. I totally agree with you. We were, I was just having a conversation with somebody else and I was saying there's a saying in Chinese medicine where, uh, you know, not expressing your emotions, especially anger, is the root cause of most disease. And it's really interesting. Um, I could think of so many examples in my own practice where I would see somebody that came in that developed, you know, a certain kind of cancer like uh colon cancer, for example. And, and you would see, I would start to see a pattern where people that got that were people that tend to literally hold it in, right? Mm-hmm. They're holding in their poop, they're holding in yep. their feelings. And that, you know, really does on some level make us sick. Right. And right. a lot of people, I found it really interesting because uh, sometimes I wouldn't even say it, but I would just, you know, see it. Um, and witness it. And then I would see the person talking about it and saying, wow, this disease or this cancer has really brought awareness to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm in this situation because I've held so much stuff in or right. what X, Y, Z, whatever their story was. Right. And it, I think it's a really interesting uh, component. Do you have any interesting stories that you can share with us or about that? About that in particular? Um, or what you've seen in your practice? 
with the emotional component? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have a, a emotional component story specific to cancer, but I do have... Um, I do have a story or multiple stories, but this patient in particular was struggling um, with her thyroid and going through menopause and she was losing her hair. Um, and we had pretty much shored up all the physiologic comp physiological components that we could that were maybe contributing to her hair loss. And she came in one day and she was frustrated about um, the relationship that she was having with her mother. She's the patient is in her 50s, her mother's in her 70s, um, and and was starting to have some cognitive problems, some dementia. Um, and she was expressing this frustration. And it occurred to me that her hair loss was in relationship to this frustration. So I told... I, it's I, like wanting to pull... You're so frustrated, you right, want to pull your pull hair, hair out. out. So I suggested to her that you know if there was another family member that could take on the care that she had been providing for a period of time so she could get some space, um, that she should consider doing that. And um, I also, it didn't occur to her either that her that her mother was suffering some, from some cognitive difficulties. So the frustration was um, partly out of her not understanding that she couldn't actually respond to her in a way. So I helped her to understand that. And then I suggested that she get some support around it. And about maybe three weeks later, we were having a follow-up phone call and her hair had stopped. She so cool. she said, nobody's ever brought anything like that to my attention before. Thank you so much. Um, I handed it off to my brother. He's been taking care of things, and I feel so much better. I love that story. That's so beautiful. And it's such a beautiful example of just how stress and, you know, holding an emotion and, and having awareness of what you're going through and, and honoring that is such an important part of the journey in life. Absolutely. I, I also think of, um, of diseases like cancer as being um, an ultimate teacher. You know, when you yeah. do need that moment to say, oh, I need to pay attention to some things. Yeah. Oh, know, illness of any kind can do that. Yeah. And now what about, um, let's talk a little bit about screening mm -hmm. and um uh, mammography, you know, and other options. You know, I just recently, I was just telling you before I was, I recently just saw somebody speaking about mammography and he was talking about that mammograms can cause cancer because of the radiation. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously in your mind, you're like, oh my God, we're doing a mammogram and it could give me, can you know, create cancer in my body. What is the thought process behind that? It's kind of seems like it doesn't really make sense, right. but it's true. It does not make sense. Um, I've, I think it may be a bit of an antiquated technology to be using on tissue as sensitive as the breast. Um, and there are alternatives. Um, there's clinical breast exams that you can do with your primary care or your OBGYN once a year. Um, there's ultrasound, including 3D ultrasound, which can be really good at, at finding irregularities. Um, there's thermography, which looks at um, changes in heat um, in different areas of the body because cancer is very highly metabolic, so it lights up as a high heat area. Um, there's also MRI. Um, so if you're willing to you know, pay out of pocket, of which um, there's ways to find you know, lower cost options for that. MRI is another way that you could go about from, for screening. Oh, interesting. Um, and in terms of you know, the standard of care, the, there's you know, been recent changes in the guidelines. And um, the American Cancer Society and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the U.S. Preventative Task Force don't agree mm. on what the screening should be. 
um, and in terms of what you know what age it should start and how long it should continue. Um, and then in addition to that, there was a recent um, huge study, 25-year study of almost 90,000 women ages 40 to 59. And it was a, a study is published in the British Medical Journal um, that looked at uh, overall um, prevention of mortality from standard screening guidelines. And they actually found that there was no change, no improvement um, in lives saved from the kind of cancer screening guidelines that we have, breast cancer screening guidelines that we have. And in fact, that they found that in 22% of the cases, there had been overdiagnosis and therefore a lot of other procedures that came after that because of uh, being overly diagnosed in um, in cases where there wasn't actually yeah, any breast wow, cancer. Wow. I mean, I just, that is amazing. And I wonder how many cases there are of women that are maybe like grade zero that go on to do therapy, actually, out right. of fear, get a mastectomy, um, you know, because there's that worry or the doctor wants to take extra precautions. I wonder right. what those numbers would be. I Well, and that's another, that's a whole nother point. So what you're talking about, the stage zero, um, which we call DCI, DCIS or ductal cell carcinoma in situ. Um, and that was also very recently, I want to say maybe in the last year or so, uh, might be a little bit longer now, where... Um, the science has come out that that it's not in fact cancer; it's precancerous. And um, going into this realization, um, more than ninety percent of breast cancers were or had been diag- that had been diagnosed prior were DCIS, and all of those women were being given standard treatment options. Whereas now it's being recognized as a precancerous um, state or you know disease process that therefore has even more. Um, chance of resolution and reversal by other methods and certainly doesn't really warrant treatment for cancer when it's not even cancer yet. Yeah. So talk, and that fascinates me. So let's, because that, you know, with, with, if you go in and somebody says, oh my God, you have pre, uh, precancerous cells in your breast, you know, people are going to go, oh my God, I want to kill it. I want to get it out of there. So what, I mean, can, I know that like with HPV, for example, you know, that's a great example of, you know, you could be positive for HPV Mm -hmm. and then, you know, within a cycle of three months, your cells slip off and it could be total, you could have a completely normal pap smear after that. What, how does, is, is there anything similar with breast cancer or how does, I think with any cancer, so you have abnormal cells, right? Um, the, they're in an environment that can either promote the progression or can be either influence your environment can change your internal environment you can change it and therefore it will start to reverse you know its behavior um and or the other part of that really about that about immune regulation you know mm-hmm. your immune system's either going to regulate it and kind of bring it back into a more normal state or going to or it's going to stay disrupted and allow it to flourish um and i, I think the the concept that i i want people to understand is, you know, the environment in which you you live in and that you create within your body really matters about whether or not you go on to develop cancer. That's um, such good info. So really, if you went in and you, you know, you were told that you had precancerous mm-hmm. cells in your breast, um, instead of another option would be instead of rushing to do radiation or, you know, chemotherapy, you could monitor it. You could totally Definitely change your life, it, yeah. change your diet. As you said, regulate your immune system, work on anti-inflammation, opening your detox pathways, right. and then maybe just how often would you check it if you were going to do something I like that? I believe every three to six months is the recommendation. 
Wow. I mean, that is like life-changing information. Seriously. I mean, if, if people were really told that, cause I don't, I don't really think doctors tell patients that at all. No, absolutely. They don't, they absolutely don't do that. And I'm not actually quite sure either what the current standard of care is now that that assertion has been made that DCI, DCIS is not cancer. Um, and I think that's also where these different, you know, governing bodies in the medical community are at odds. They don't really even know what to do with it yeah. quite yet. They don't know how to advise their patients. There's a lot of controversy around it. Um, yeah, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a gray zone right now. It's really interesting. I mean, I know somebody who was just going through a situation like the one you were just describing, and then they recommended that she get a mammogram every three months. So they can promote the cancer some more. No, Great. and I mean, I was, I mean, I felt bad, but I, you know, I, my opinion, I was like, well, if you're getting a, you already have this, you know, precancerous, and then you're getting a mammogram every three months. What? Like, but, but it just, I don't understand. I don't understand. I it. don't either, honestly. And I'm, I'm, I'm a physician. I'm in that, I'm in that community on some level. Um, and there are so many practices that they have that just don't add up. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, say. Yeah, I know. It's it's interesting. But anyway, that's why we're talking about this and letting people know that there are options and alternatives and um, that you always have a choice. It's your body. And, and to take the time to do the research, talk to experts on every side. There's no right or wrong. It's your body. And you should be able to choose whatever feels right to you. Absolutely. Um, and a little bit. So let's say um, somebody has gone through treatment and they're in remission, you know, um, I, I've seen people who started taking tamoxifen and had pretty serious side effects from that. And I know like some of the side effects are, is it ovarian cancer? Um, uterine cancer. Uterine cancer. And then I think like risk of stroke or something like that. Right. So that's another one that kind of bonkers, boggles my mind where, you know, somebody's in remission and then you're giving them a drug that could cause a different kind of cancer and their quality of life with all those side effects really goes down. What do you, what do you think about yeah. tamoxifen? Well, I mean, the other, the, Tamoxifen is an anti-estrogenic, you know, compound, um, and it's thought to lower the risk of recurrence. Um, but if you look at the data closely, it lowers the risk, or the, rather, it, it, it reduces the risk by like five percent or something really minuscule. Mm -hmm. um, and the other piece of that is that there are other ways that you can continue to um, be proactive about discouraging those bad estrogens from forming, uh -huh. the bad estrogens from not being able to get out of your body um, that don't involve taking a drug that blocks estrogen receptors not only in the breast but in other um, tissue types that actually rely on estrogen to function normally. Yeah, so give us some examples. Like what would So what would you recommend if somebody came to you and said, I don't want to take tamoxifen, but I'm scared, what I, can I do? I would, well, I actually do a test where I look at the way that women metabolize their estrogens. Um, it's a urine test and um, you can see the various pathways that they um, that their estrogens you know go down, um, and as I had mentioned before, things like methane and calcium deglucurate will influence um, the direction in which they break do have their estrogen breakdown. Um, there has not been a single woman that I've worked with where that hasn't. Um, held up where wow. we've had a poor estrogen metabolizer. We've implemented these different um, these different strategies, including the methane, the DEM, and the calcium deglucurate, and the anti-inflammatory diet, and opening up liver pathways that hasn't successfully changed the way that they do that. And the thing I love about what you're saying is that all the things that you're talking about are things that actually make you feel better. They don't make you nauseous. They don't give you hot flashes. 
And they're things that you can incorporate into your diet. And that is amazing. It is amazing. Because it's because, you know, your heart when you see somebody in these situations um, and they could get the same results doing something without feeling terrible or going into premenopause. you know, that that's just such an important it's such an important option to people for people to learn about. Absolutely. There's um, I was going to add a couple other foods that yeah. have some some um, anti-estrogen like um, characteristics. So flax seeds, um, they actually bind to the estrogens, the bad estrogens um, and act in a way to be anti-estrogenic because they then lead that estrogen out through the bile duct into, you know, the your excretory system so you can eliminate it. And so how many, um, so if somebody wanted to start doing that, would mm-hmm. you have, what would the dose be daily that you would recommend for just a regular person? The dose is, I want to say it's two to three tablespoons. One second. Yeah. So you could just, I mean, I I, in the morning, I'll just like grind up some flax seeds. Two to three tablespoons yeah. per day. You could just throw yeah. it in your smoothie or you could mix it in water and drink it. And what about like, does flax oil do the same or you really need to do the ground seeds? You need seeds? the ground seeds. Okay. Um, it has the, 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 the active compound in there is the ligands, the ligands, yeah. and it's in the seed itself. Okay. Um, and then the other one are pomegranates. Mm. So pomegranates have um, a compound called elegic acid, uh-huh. um, which is a really potent antioxidant. It goes around and sweeps up all the free radicals that create um, what we call oxidative stress, yeah. um, which is the way that a cell starts to, um, starts to you know, in, in, a, in a way, deteriorate. So it is... Um, it's something that can um, suppress that deterioration so can be, process. Can people, I mean, obviously pomegranates aren't ripe all year round. So could people do like a supplement? Um, they, uh, is there like pomegranate so. powder think, or something like that? I don't that? think supplements work for their. Oh, it really. Well so, oh, really? Acid. So, you really, when pomegranate season is. Yeah, pomegranate. And then they're, but they're also available in um, raspberries and Marian berries. Oh, nice. And it's um, easy. You can get raspberries pretty you much. You can also do um, pomegranate juice. Nice. Right. So if you have it in season, you could freeze a bunch of it or yeah. you could just buy it already juiced. That would have the elegic acid in it as well. Oh, that's great. Really good info. Green that. tea. That's easy. Green tea is anti-estrogenic. And um, apples have a compound called quercetin, which is anti-inflammatory and has some anti-estrogenic effects and also prevents metastases or the um, spreading. Oh, of that's interesting. I have cancer uh, cells taking quercetin for allergies and mm-hmm. it works really well just the supplement but I didn't know about the mesotasis yeah the, the prevention of but, metastases yeah. oh yeah. wow and then um caffeine so um it they have looked at studies women who are getting um on average 500 milligrams of caffeine a day which is four to five cups of coffee have 70 percent more estrogen in their body than women who stick to you know one or two oh, servings wow. So you caffeine addicts out there need yeah. to need to lower it lower it lower it down a little bit. Is that just any caffeine, right? Um, it's or is any it caffeine. Just coffee? Okay, yeah. So the idea was to consume less than hundred milligrams a day. So your average green tea has, I think, sixty milligrams. No, that's black tea. Black tea is like sixty to seventy. Green tea is thirty to forty milligrams. Um, a shot or two of espresso is under a hundred. So just keep it to like one or two cups That's right. of caffeine a day. That's right. Thank you so much. Like all of this information has been so amazing. And um, we would love to have you come back sometime. And um, 
I think it's great to get this information out there, like I said, just to really empower women because this information is not readily available for most people. And it's really important. But any are there any last words or anything we left out that you think is really important? Um, I don't know. Do we emphasize the greens enough? You know. Yeah, I mean, as well, we could do like a recap. I think to make it easy, a recap of um, different foods, and then um, well, the, we you briefly touched on the stress component, which isn't so much to say that we can get rid of stress in our lives, but we can change the way we respond to it. Yeah, um, that's an important piece. Um, Anything that you can do to uh, keep your inflammation to a minimum. Um, exercise is important. It's also mm-hmm. great for stress reduction, and it changes the way that your autonomic nervous system responds and helps you relax into that um, re- into that relaxation response after. Yeah. That's another one, which is the opposite of fight or flight, Yeah, that stress response. Um, what else? I think, you know, like you said, it's keeping it simple with diet, eating lots of uh, green vegetables, fiber. You know, really what you're saying is... about skin products? Oh, yeah, that's really important. When you're getting the toxins out, you want to look at that. You want to avoid products, beauty products that you use that have, are filled with endocrine disruptors like parabens and um, and sodium lauryl sulfate and so on and so forth. Uh, um, there's a great website um, from the Environmental Working Group that has a guide called Skin Deep. And I lo- that is um, so important because, I mean, guide. there's I think that we have – Europe has banned, like, hundreds of uh, toxic ingredients, and we've banned, like, a handful. And so there are so many toxic ingredients out there in skincare and beauty products. And it's really cool because there's places you can go now that just don't have any of that. I know there's a new company. I can't remember what they're called, but somebody was telling me about it where – you know, there's a whole bunch of companies are, like yeah. that now that are uh, mineral based and just really organic and clean. But that's such a great thing. So just like a recap, cleaning up your house, you know, getting the toxins out, cleaning up your diet, really moving towards a plant based diet. If you're doing meats, free range grass fed, right. yeah. non GMO. Um, and then the supplements you you mentioned all are great, like incorporating the flaxseed and the calcium D glucurate. Calcium um, methane. Yep. And when people are looking for that, I th- they could just, if you can't pronounce that word or don't remember it, just call it dim. Dim. That's right. Yep. And eat lots of cruciferous vegetables. And, um, hopefully we can talk more and go a little bit deeper, but, um, thank you so much for bringing awareness to this important, uh, subject, especially on breast cancer awareness month. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure.